On Wednesday, the 31st of May, 1854, 27 young African men walked into Luanda, which was a Portuguese town on the coast of Angola. Well, there's nothing unusual about that, but these men were Kololo, and their villages were far away inland, in what's now Zambia. In fact, they'd walked close to 2,000 kilometres. It had taken them since the middle of November the previous year, and they arrived ragged, hungry and destitute. But what interested the people of Luanda much more, and especially the English consul Edmund Gabriel, was what the Kololo had brought with them. It was a white man, gravely malnourished and sick, his clothes in rags. His name was David Livingstone. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank. And we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Dr Livingston, I presume? I suppose most of us have heard the words, and some of us are vaguely aware that they were first said by an explorer, Henry Morton Stanley, who, is this right, went to find Dr Livingston somewhere in Africa, but we've long forgotten why the doctor was lost and why Stanley went looking for him. Actually, like Stanley, I first stumbled across David Livingston in an African village. I was making history films for the BBC, and I wanted to make a film about African history. Actually, well, look, partly, let's be honest, I wanted to travel at somebody else's expense. Outrageous. But I also believed it was important to try to tell stories about anywhere other than Europe, Britain and America. So I hunted in the library, and I came across a new book about an African village in Malawi called Magomero. The book told a great and tragic story about an African rising against the British in 1915. Well, it's a good story, but I knew that I could sell the idea to my boss in the BBC because the action all took place on an estate that had belonged to the Livingston family. In fact, it had earlier been the site of one of Dr Livingston's failed missions. Actually, the story of the mission was that the Reverend Doctor, far from converting the local people, had gone about the place shooting at them. A story, in fact, we'll come back to later in this series. Well, the trick worked. BBC Two bought the idea of the film because it was vaguely about Dr Livingstone and because everybody had heard of him, and that would be good for ratings. So I made this film about 1915, but I was left with a gnawing question about what had really happened years before at Livingstone's mission. What kind of man had David Livingstone really been? All I knew was what had happened at Magomero, and also a popular story that Livingstone only ever made one convert and that he later gave up his new faith. And then we were suddenly reminded of Livingston, because we had begun thinking about modern explorers after someone loaned us a book about the first ascent of any 8,000-metre mountain, the climbing of Annapurna in Nepal, by a French team in 1950. The thing was that we then read a second book that showed that the official account we'd just read had been completely misleading. Something much more interesting had gone on. And then we looked at another explorer, Robert Falcon Scott's expedition to the South Pole in 1912. Remember, he got there second just days after the Norwegian Royal Amundsen, and then Scott died with his whole team on the way back. Remember, 
uh, Captain Oates, I may be some time. Exactly. The story we were always told about Scott was tragic and chivalric and noble. Except that when we looked more closely, it turned out that it wasn't at all. It was all rather disgraceful. So we began to sniff the beginning of a pattern. In fact, the more we knew about these modern expeditions and the way they were run, and especially the way they are remembered, the more this trail seemed to lead back, well, to Dr. Livingstone. You could almost date the start of this train of romantic, but often also fatal expeditions, to the moment when Stanley said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, in a village on Lake Tanganyika, sometime late in 1871. In fact, we don't even know the exact date, because both men had lost track. So, this is a series about David Livingstone, a romantic and troubled modern hero. And we're really not trying to poo-poo the extraordinary things that men like Livingstone did or even Scott, what we're trying to do is to understand how such events came about and how on earth they were turned into the romantic half-true stories most of us now half know. Had these great men and women made history happen, as historians used to believe, and is the way most popular history is still told, or had history happened to them? The other thing is that this is a cracking good story, and most of us are armchair travellers at heart. So, let's pick up the story as David Livingston staggers into Luanda on the Angolan coast that Wednesday, 31st of May, 1854. For some days now, the British consul at Luanda, Edmund Gabriel, had been hearing rumours that this Dr Livingston, in fact the Reverend Dr Livingston, because he was both a clergyman and a medical doctor, was on his way. He'd heard he'd initially been rescued by Portuguese traders 300 miles inland at Kasangi and had only made it through the final stretch of the coast with their help. When he finally appeared, the British consul took pity on him and brought him into his house. Over the next four months, he nursed Livingston slowly back to health. Now, it's not true to say that Livingston was completely unknown in 1854. A Scots missionary, he had in 1850 been awarded a chronometer by the Royal Geographical Society in London for an expedition in which he'd accurately recorded the location of Lake Ngami in what's now Botswana. A chronometer? A chronometer keeps time, which you need to do in order to find out your longitude. But the geographers usually awarded a couple of gold medals to travellers every year, and the Reverend Doctor's chronometer, well, it was a bit of a consolation prize. Anyway, outside the polite lecture rooms of the Royal Geographical Society, well, not far from Trafalgar Square, the Reverend Doctor Livingstone was just another obscure missionary preaching to people far away. Consul Gabriel reported Livingstone's arrival in Luanda to his boss back in London, the Foreign Secretary, the Earl of Clarendon. Well, the Portuguese were already reporting it, so he probably felt he ought to. But anyway, Livingstone had very evidently travelled an exceedingly long way and would be a useful source of information. Perhaps it was also because Gabriel's main job was to try to halt the slave trade being conducted on Africa's west coast by Portuguese and Arab merchants. And as he discovered during the months Livingston spent in his house, Livingston was also committed to ending the slave trade. It was a cause he'd picked up in 1840, just before leaving for Africa, during a lecture by the abolitionist Thomas Full Buxton. Actually, Buxton was a remarkable man. You can discover it from our series on the abolition of enslavement and the slave trade. 
Well, Gabriel also wrote to Lord Ellesmere, who was that year the president of the Royal Geographical Society. Shall, shall we call it the RGS? The RGS for short. Well, Livingston might even have suggested he wrote to him, perhaps this time they'd give him a gold medal. Anyway, Ellesmere was delighted with the news. Livingston's latest journey was just the kind of story the RGS needed to raise money for its work. In fact, by chance, just a couple of weeks before Gabriel's letter arrived in London, the Society had heard, read out to them, a letter that had been sent by Livingston himself many months before. In fact, before he'd set off from the Kololo villages in what's now Zambia. In that letter, Livingston had given an account of his original trek to reach the Kololo back in early 1853, along with another collection of useful locational data. He'd started from South Africa, hadn't he? He started out from South Africa, from the Transvaal. Livingston had even reported that he'd met Arab traders who'd crossed Africa from coast to coast. Well, look, the RGS had been trying to set up an expedition to cross Africa since at least the 1830s, but could never get the British government to back the idea. Well, the notion that Arabs were already doing it was just the kind of information the RGS geographers could use. And the news from Luanda now that an impoverished British missionary had somehow done it himself, or at any rate, a large part of it, and it needed to be saved by the Portuguese slave merchants of, the all, shame. <laughs> of all people, was just the icing on the fundraising cake. Let alone all the useful data he might have collected. In fact, the Astronomer Royal at the South African Cape, Thomas McClear, had written a covering note that had reached London with Livingston's account. Such a man, wrote the astronomer, deserves every encouragement in the power of his country to grant. He's done that which few other travellers in Africa can boast of. He's fixed his geographical points with very great accuracy, and still he is only a poor missionary. So when Lord Aylesmere, president of the RGS, heard from Consul Gabriel that Livingstone had arrived in Luanda, well, he passed the letter to the London papers, adding a personal note that Livingstone's extraordinary journey was, quote, one of the greatest geographical explorations of the age. And so the legend of Livingstone had been born. Well, actually, no, it hadn't. I knew you were going to say that. Well, not yet. <laughs> In August 1854, the news reached London that a poor missionary, Dr David Livingstone, had somehow and for some reason completed an extraordinary journey, some 2,000 kilometres from what is now Zambia to the Angolan coast on the west of Africa. The president of the Royal Geographical Society, always anxious to raise funds for expeditions, at once informed the press... But although the London papers dutifully printed his letter and the provincial press then copied it out as they always did, the fact was that nobody was really interested. The Worcester Journal, for example, paid much more attention to a large catch of herrings by three young men in Plymouth. Within a day or two, everyone had forgotten all about Dr Livingstone. Well, they were reminded of the story a few weeks later when the British Association held its annual jamboree. This year it was in Liverpool and the opening address was given by Lord Harrowby. He briefly mentioned Livingstone, among other travellers, in the news that year. One of Livingstone's letters and the Consul Gabriel's dispatches were then read out at a meeting of the British Association's Section E, 
geography and ethnography. That sounds important. So the newspapers duly reported all over again. But they were much, I mean really much, much more interested in the glittering civic reception the Mayor of Liverpool had thrown for the British Association and who had attended. Once more, everyone very quickly forgot all about the Reverend Dr Livingstone. Meanwhile, back in Angola, Livingston now felt sufficiently recovered to wave goodbye to Luanda and set off again back where he'd come from. He turned down the chance to return to England aboard the packet boat Forerunner and see his wife Mary and their five children. But it was just as well, since the boat sank with only one survivor off of Madeira. Instead, Livingston and his 27 Kololo men... Who'd had a very good time in Luanda... They'd been employed at one time, for example, in loading coal onto one of the boats there. And they'd been given those nice Portuguese uniforms. They'd been given very slight uniforms with red caps. That's right. So now Livingston and his wife. So now Livingston and his 27 Kololo men, with their new uniforms, walked for almost exactly a year back to their village, where they arrived on the 13th of September, 1855. They'd been away over two years and had together walked well over 2,000 miles. But now, Dr Livingstone was determined to keep going. He was going to make it all the way to the east coast of Africa, actually to cross the entire continent. He turned down the chance to tag along with one of the Arab slave traders who was going that way, and instead he set off again with his friends the Kololo, this time with a party of 114 men. Together, they traced the course of the great Zambezi River except that is for one large loop which they all cut off and which was to have enormous implications for David Livingstone later, as we shall see. Together, they reached the east coast at Kelimane on the 20th of May, 1856. They had tracked another 800 miles and had once again, if had only been saved by the Portuguese on the final stages. And by Portuguese, we mean the Portuguese traders and often slave traders. Often slave traders. The RGS later reckoned that in all his various journeys by 1856, the Reverend Dr Livingstone had travelled a total of 11,000 miles. Historians now think the true figure was closer to 5,000 miles, about 8,000 kilometres, but it's still an unbelievable statistic when you think of the terrain. Especially also when you think that David Livingstone had achieved most of it, other than the very early journeys, with Africans, African help going along with him. No other explorer of the time had ever attempted anything of the kind. But why was this obscure missionary not getting on with his job in his mission station, preaching as he was paid to do? And how, we want to know, did his strange expeditions become one of the modern legends of British history? Livingston had been a missionary in this part of southern Africa since 1841. <sighs> Truth was, he'd been a difficult colleague and eventually settled on the idea of striking out and setting up a mission on his own. It was also true that he got the bug for exploring. He got to know Thomas McClear, the astronomer royal in Cape Town, and had mastered the science of making observations accurate enough to map new territories. He'd also fallen in with a handful of big game hunters, and he joined their expeditions further into the interior. The chronometer the RGS had awarded him in 1850 had come after one of these expeditions, in which Livingston and his hunter friends had crossed the perilous Kalahari Desert and reached Lake Ngami. They were actually not the first Europeans to reach it, but Livingston was the first to record on a map exactly where the lake was, and that was what the RGS was in the business of doing. North of the Kalahari, Livingston found that he got on particularly well with the Africans. In fact, 
His greatest gift, the thing that really marked him out from almost all the other missionaries and explorers of this period... Let alone all the planters and officials elsewhere in the British Empire. ...was that he and the local peoples genuinely seemed to understand each other. Now, Livingston had been born near Glasgow and was himself bilingual in English and Scots Gaelic. And this perhaps made it easier for him to learn new languages. But he certainly made it his business to master the Africans' languages and to try to understand their ways of doing things. He was also fortunate to marry Mary, the daughter of the Reverend Robert Moffat, perhaps the greatest missionary in Southern Africa at the time. Moffat, the father, would eventually translate the Bible into Setswana, one of the local languages, and his name was respected by Africans over a wide area. His daughter Mary was tough and practical, well she had to be. She'd had her first five children in just six years. She was also fluent in Setswana and good at getting along with Africans. The historian Joanna Lewis suggests that it was his marriage to Mary Moffat that first set Livingston apart from what she calls, quotes, the mediocrity of his own circumstances and abilities. Well, once Livingston had set out on his expeditions, he almost entirely neglected Mary and their children, who were reduced to grinding poverty. In fact, once he'd taken up with the wealthy Cape Hunters, the Reverend Doctor apparently began to find his feisty wife oh, a bit of an embarrassment. But the truth was that Livingston quickly got tired of almost all the Europeans he tried to work with. He increasingly began to find his hunting friends embarrassing in African company and finally decided to travel only with the local people. By the time he came back to England in 1856, he said he was having difficulty speaking English since he'd only spoken African languages for years. You see, other explorers travelled with enormous retinues, including Indian soldiers and gun-touting white officers. Livingston himself chose to travel with just a few, and always Africans. Those who got to know him apparently loved him. To conventionalise, it made him a hopeless missionary, since he was much too sympathetic to African beliefs and sensibilities to bully them into baptism as Christians. Nor was he interested in colonisation, as we nowadays understand it seizing land and imposing white British government. Indeed, he bitterly complained that European behaviour was very frequently much worse than African. What Livingston dreamt of was commerce, encouraging Africans to grow and gather cotton or ivory or anything else themselves that they could trade for British clothes and other manufacturers they needed. Being a man of his time, he believed that trade with Europeans would save Africans from what he regarded as their poverty and in due course encourage them to adopt for themselves European civilization, eventually including its forms of government. Christian belief, he calculated, could follow along in its own good time. But you see, all this needs more explanation. After all, this part of Africa was already crisscrossed with trade and commerce running from the interior to the coasts, both east and west. It was anything but an unexplored, unknown continent. Portuguese and Arab traders regularly journeyed through, even if they didn't bother to make astronomical measurements and send their calculations to the Royal Geographical Society in London. In fact, early in 1853, before Livingston had even set off towards Luanda, the RGS had heard a paper about three Arab traders who'd crossed Africa all the way from Zanzibar on the east coast to Benguela in Angola. And as William Cooley, the geographer who gave the paper, noted, quotes, native emissaries have crossed more than once from the interior of Angola on one side to the interior of the government of Mozambique on the other. 
The Africans, in other words, were crossing the continent, if not all the time, then regularly enough for it not to be news. Several of the features Livingston claimed to have discovered, for example, Lake Nyasa, now Lake Malawi, had in reality been known about for years. Even Livingston quietly admitted that the lake was already on established Arab trade routes. Well, he could hardly deny it. A Portuguese merchant had given him a sketch map of the lake before he'd set out to discover it. Livingston's only contribution was to come up with some more precise coordinates for the lake and draw a proper map of the southern part of it. And you see, this part of Central Africa was already also awash with European goods. Guns, gunpowder, mirrors, alcohol, cotton clothes made in Manchester, much more besides. It came from the Portuguese in the west, the Arabs in the east, the Dutch Boers from the south. So what was different about what Livingston was proposing to do? Well, Livingston was determined to find a way to stop all those Western goods you've just mentioned being paid for in African slaves, for goodness sake. Between 1853 and 1856, David Livingstone undertook a series of extraordinary journeys into the African interior and from there to the west and then to the east coast. Livingstone made accurate locational observations as he went and sent his results back to the Royal Geographical Society in London. But Livingstone's main purpose was to find a way to bring trade goods into and out of the African interior. It was the only way, he believed, to replace the trade in African slaves, which was being run by the Portuguese and Arabs and had caught many African peoples up in its gruesome net. The Portuguese and Arabs and their various African allies who travelled into the interior were force-marching African captives back to the coasts. Men, women and children who'd usually been taken prisoner by neighbouring African peoples. Of course, the money that could be made was encouraging the Africans either to start or to prolong wars and to seize as many prisoners as they were able. Livingstone called slavery, quotes, the bitter fountain of African misery. But he intelligently realised that unless he could come up with an alternative way for the Africans to make money, the slave trade would go on. It was an idea he'd picked up from Thomas Fowl Buxton, leader of the abolition movement from the 1820s, whom he'd heard, remember, in a lecture in 1840. It's exactly the same problem, in fact, as the opium trade of Afghanistan and the drugs grown in South America. No amount of drugs enforcement will ever make the slightest difference until the local farmers have the infrastructure and the markets for alternative crops. But that, of course, means spending money in obscure, faraway places, and no Western government is willing to do it. They'd rather waste money on gun boots and watch their young people get addicted and die. The slave trade was exactly the same. Livingston grasped that the solution was not to ban it, but to replace it. As we saw in our series on the abolition of British enslavement, these things really never end as a result of moral pressure. They end only when they are no longer profitable. So you see, Livingston's grand plan, Christianity, commerce and civilization, as he called it, was never intended to be an imperialist, colonizing, racist attempt to take Central Africa over. It was conceived as a practical solution to a humanitarian disaster, a realistic way to confront a complicated issue. 
It depended on finding other things the Africans could trade, other than themselves, but also on finding a practical route to carry bulky trade goods into and out of the interior. After all, slaves were made to walk to the coast, but you couldn't do that with cotton, ivory, coffee or tobacco. And that was where the problems began. If Livingston was going to find viable alternatives, he'd have to identify a commercial way to transport cotton or ivory, coffee or tobacco in bulk hundreds of miles to the coasts. He would have, in fact, to find a river. Now, Livingston knew that there were at least three great rivers flowing from the centre of Africa, the Nile, the Congo and the Zambezi. What he needed to do was to discover whether it was possible to navigate from the coast along any of them far enough into the interior and in a boat sufficiently large to make serious trade profitable. He also needed to discover whether the interior parts you could reach along such a river were sufficiently fertile and, just as important, sufficiently healthy to establish plantations growing cotton, tobacco or coffee, for example. But you'll say, wasn't Livingston supposed to be a missionary? Indeed, he was being paid a modest £100 a year by the London Missionary Society, the LMS. It's true that he proposed that the LMS could, possibly, establish a mission in Central Africa, which would stand at the heart of the commercial enterprise he hoped he could establish. But you can't help thinking that the mission idea very much took second place in Livingston's mind. After all, with very few exceptions including his father-in-law, he couldn't stand other missionaries. And he had now spent literally years absent from what was supposed to be his own mission station. So Livingston's amazing journeys from 1849 to 1856 now make much more sense. First, he pushed into the interior, into the area where, it was rumoured, there were a number of great lakes like Ngami and Nyasa. It was a decent guess that one or more of the great rivers would have its source there and could be followed all the way to the coast. There was in fact already a controversy between geographers over exactly where the Nile began, some saying it was in Lake Tanganyika, others in Lake Victoria. Well, the Nile would be far too long a route for trade from this part of central southern Africa, but if the Congo or the Zambezi turned out to be navigable as far inland as any of the Great Lakes, then Livingston's plan would be practical. So, having established a base north of the Kalahari, deep in the interior, with the Kololo people, Livingston then tried his luck along the Portuguese slave trade routes to the west. It was further to the coast than going the other way, but a logical plan, since using a port on the west coast would shorten trade voyages to England by weeks. This is before the Suez Canal, of course. But by the time Livingston stumbled half-dead into Luanda, he discovered no great river that would be any use for commerce. Which is why he refused the opportunity to return home to his wife and five children in England and headed back to the Klolo villages where he'd started. He would try his luck going along the Arab slave routes east. <sighs> the man was indestructible. <laughs> Just five feet eight inches with a left arm that had been more than badly broken by a lion, he'd had to reset it himself. No surprise, it wasn't much use after that. Livingston also went down with constant bouts of ulcers, dysentery and malaria that would have killed most other Europeans. Often close to starvation, Livingston was stronger than the ox he rode as he travelled. You see, he had an ox. <laughs> he had a very bad-tempered ox, apparently. Was <laughs> it a bad-tempered ox? His journals and letters, and he wrote thousands of letters 
to the Cape astronomer Maclear, to anti-slaver Consul Gabriel, to those hunters he'd first befriended. He wrote actually apparently to everyone he ever met. With the exception possibly of anyone he'd ever had to work with, as people he didn't seem to get on with. All this constant writing is absolutely saturated, it's fascinating, with an extraordinary, extraordinary determination to just keep going no matter what happened. But the letters are also suffused with an unmistakably authentic passion to understand African people and with deep, convincing and thoughtful Christian faith. And also rather surprisingly for a man with a dour reputation, full of jokes and funny stories, often at his own expense. In fact, you can read almost all these letters in the original online at livingstononline.org. It's an amazing project. Look, I guess if saints are allowed to be impossible to work with, neglectful of their wife and children, often misguided in their plans, trapped within many of the misunderstandings of their time, reluctant to admit their mistakes, obsessively jealous that others might take credit for their achievements, then, well, perhaps Livingston was a saint. But at this point, we need to change our perspective. Indeed, we've already spent far too long looking at the story from Livingston's point of view. We need to try to think about this story from an African point of view. David Livingstone's South African journeys up to 1856 belonged to a grand scheme in which the explorer tried to establish outside trade to the African interior in order to supplant the slave trade, which had created untold misery among the peoples there. That certainly appears to be what Livingstone himself thought he was doing. But like every other individual in history, he was only one part of a whole series of historical shifts and changes. So if we're going to understand what turned this obscure missionary into something of a legend, we need to try to grasp what these deeper and broader forces were. Well, American historian Stephen Voltz writes that until the 1850s, the peoples of southern Central Africa have mostly regarded Christian missionaries as, quote, relatively benign curiosities that might be employed in all kinds of ways for the benefit of their communities. Missionaries had begun arriving from around 1800, and the Africans found that they had useful skills. Doctors, blacksmiths, scribes, advisors, diplomats. Africans were also impressed by Christianity's humanitarian ideals, by the kindness of Christians and their support for the poor and the homeless. African rulers saw the new beliefs as a way to bolster their authority, while being careful not to commit to Christianity themselves. In practice, what was going on was not, as most of us were brought up to imagine, a process of converting or conquering African peoples. Voltz points out that the Africans were neither impressed nor threatened by the Europeans. They were just concerned with using the missionaries for the good of their own communities. Until the 1850s, at least, it was, as Voltz comments, quotes, unclear who might be using whom. In the areas reached by the London Missionary Society, Livingston's employers, most of the missions had actually been set up and run by the Africans themselves. They used the Bible, translated into Setswana by Robert Moffat, Livingston's remarkable father-in-law. In Setswana, the gospel was, and excuse my pronunciation, Mahoko Amolemo, which could be translated as good news, but could also be translated as medicinal words. Livingston himself accepted the title Ngaka, which roughly translates as doctor, but also 
could be translated or mean a person who could heal guns or wagons, as in mend them, who could bring rain or even help end a war. The Christianity of the African admissions was as much concerned with ending drought, curing illnesses and sorting local disputes as it was ever with eternal salvation. It was, we might say, a deeply African faith shaped by African considerations. But by the 1850s, when Livingston was on his travels, relations between Africans and Europeans were breaking down. Growing trade with white people, especially with the Boers from the South, had begun to create or indeed worsen divisions, bitter divisions between the African peoples. They began trading wildlife products for guns and the region began to become much more violent. Unlike the missionaries, the new white settlers were violent, heartless. Their society was riddled with class, neglected the poor. It was not what the Christian good news said. African rulers began to conclude, as Robert Moffat put it, that, quotes, the English are either a very weak or a very wicked people. Well, the missionaries began to fight back. They began trying to stress the importance of community and to encourage Africans to develop European-style agriculture as a way to counter what they saw as the footloose and immoral behaviour of European traders and hunters. But the gun and the game it could kill was so much stronger than the missionaries' message that African communities were beginning to break up. And then things got much worse. In January 1852, the British and the Boers signed the Sand River Convention. It recognised the independence of the Boers in the Transvaal, the lands north of the River Val. It literally gave the rough, gun-toting Boer settlers carte blanche, a blank map, to invade African lands northwards. Well, the result was that the peace-loving missionaries, whom the Boers despised, were sent retreating further and further into the interior. But soon even these areas began to be infected by the violence that the Boers were importing. Now, local African rulers began to be more and more wary of white men, including the missionaries, especially as the British government refused to do anything to restrain the violent Boers. African attendance at churches and schools began an obvious decline. Instead of a force to bind African communities together, Christianity now began to be taken up by individual Africans and small rebel groups as a way to separate themselves from the rest of the people and their rulers. Well, in the light of all this, Livingston's marches northward into the interior look much less convincing than they did at first sight. His plan for the Africans there to grow cotton and tobacco and coffee and to trade peacefully east and west, anywhere away from the advancing and vicious Boers in the south, well, they were much like what other missionaries were already saying. Yeah. His first journeys north across the forbidding Kalahari Desert had in fact been in the company of big game hunters, though the British he travelled with respected the Africans, remained Livingston's friends until the end. One even carried his coffin at the funeral. But Livingston, you see, had only decided to move north permanently when the Boers had destroyed his mission at Kolobeng in what's now Botswana. That was the start of it. Like many Africans and other missionaries, Livingston was being carried along by events. He was now fleeing from Boer violence into the interior. In fact, far from being an inspirational idea, his dream of agriculture and trade was, by the mid-1850s, beginning to look rather old-fashioned. Other missionaries had begun to despair that commerce would do any good. So Livingston was behind the times. 
What made him different from all the other missionaries was that he alone put himself through the grueling and dangerous business of setting off and actually trying to find real trade routes that would work. But now here's the really important part of it. He had virtually no resources of his own, nothing approaching what he needed for the task. David Livingstone's great scheme was only saved by an African, Sekuletu, the 17-year-old king of the Kololo in the Barotsi floodplain in what's now Zambia. Livingstone had actually met the young king's father, Sebetuani, on an earlier expedition with the big game hunters. He was not as impressed by the young son as he'd been by the father. Quotes, he is about five feet seven in height and neither so good-looking nor of so much ability as his father was. But, Livingstone added, he is equally friendly to the English. And that was the key to what happened next. Livingstone believed that he'd been able to convince Sekuleto of the truth of Christianity and the promise of the commerce he was proposing. But was that why, in fact, the young African king welcomed the Scots doctor into his village and then generously backed his plan, his expedition to the west coast and then to the east? Well, that's another question altogether. The truth was, you see, that Sekuleto had a far more pressing reason for backing the doctor as we shall see next time at the History Café. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Café and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word. Mm-hmm.